All right, let's get into our study of Jeremiah. We're going to finish chapter 15 tonight, or we hope to. We're going to begin in, in verse 10. Remember, there were three conquests. Remember, there were three major prophets that were all alive and ministering at the same time. Of course, Jerusalem lost authority with the first conquest by Nebuchadnezzar, but they weren't destroyed. At this point in time, Daniel was taken. You see Daniel in Babylon ministering within Nebuchadnezzar's own uh, household and, and government. Then about nine years later, you see a rebellion led by the Jews where they were not paying tribute anymore. They quit paying their taxes. They decided that they weren't going to pay attention to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar sent troops, came back down, and Israel wisely, or Judah, I should say, wisely surrendered, controlled the city, and uh, reconfirmed their commitment to Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point in time, Ezekiel was taken captive, and he was about 50 miles south. In fact, the only mention of the Bible, you'll see the city Tel Aviv mentioned in Ezekiel chapter uh, 1, I believe, and that's where Ezekiel had been taken. It was a city of Jewish refugees, and that's where he was called to minister. The same thing repeated itself a few years later. Judah quit paying tribute. This time, Nebuchadnezzar returned for the third siege, only this time he actually laid siege. He surrounded the city starved the people out, ultimately destroyed it, burned down the temple, stole all the temple treasures and took them back to Babylon with him. Jeremiah is the senior of these three prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. He began his ministry first. They, uh, the others were contemporaries but younger than him. I am convinced that they would have been there to hear his temple discourses, which we have already studied in earlier chapters. And Jeremiah spent his entire ministry four decades preaching to his own people, hated by his own people, rejected by his own people, ostracized by his own people, and then sat there inside the walls of the city and felt all of the pain of the siege and ultimately the conquest and witnessed the death of tens of thousands of his own uh, countrymen. Now, again, I've got that white outline which kind of shows Jeremiah's ministry. The last good king was Josiah, and Josiah had been promised grace during his life. After his death, there was a short reign of one son named Jehoahaz for three months. Then when Nebuchadnezzar took control, Jehoiakim was placed on the throne, ruled for 11 years. He died as the Babylonians were heading back to Jerusalem to get control of the city. Jehoiachin had just been on the throne for about three months. He was only like 18. At that point in time, they surrendered again. Zedekiah, his uh, uncle, was actually placed on the throne, and he ruled for the remainder of uh, what's recorded in the book of Jeremiah and up through the conquest and siege. He eventually had his eye. His sons were killed right in front of his eyes. His eyes were gouged out so that the last thing he would ever see was the death of his sons, and then he was taken back as a prisoner, King Zedekiah, to Babylon. So an ugly end. We ended last week with Jeremiah weeping. Of course, much of this book has Jeremiah weeping. But you see, Jeremiah in a great time of grief, personal grief, not just for his city, not just for his country, but for himself. And the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, there is a time for sadness. The Scripture says, in Ecclesiastes, as Solomon stated, 14 contrasts that were meant to symbolize the wholeness of life. Solomon states that there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be born, a time to die. Time to plant, 
time to harvest. Time to kill, time to heal. Time to break down, time to build up. There's a time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, and time to dance. Job made the observation in the midst of his suffering. As initially, his friends were wise in their counsel when those four strangers to us showed up. The first thing they did was just sat in sackcloth and ashes and mourned with him, uh, recognizing the great sorrow and grief that he was experiencing. But Job made the statement that every man is full of trouble on this earth. You know, I'm always leery of the preachers that I see on television or anywhere else that smile all the time. Life is not always that good. In fact, more often than not, life is hard. And especially, it can be even harder for believers, as odd as that may sound. But Jesus himself was referred to by the prophet Isaiah as a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. We can be encouraged that these heroes of the faith that we study and learn from were just human beings. They suffer the same aggravations that we do. They weren't superhuman prophets. They were just ordinary men with the same fears, the same biases, the same weaknesses that we all have. But just like us, God calls us all to different areas of ministry and then equips us to be able to do His call. Nevertheless, great men and women of God have struggled with discouragement. They've struggled with depression. They've struggled with wanting to give up. Here in Numbers 11, you see Moses just a year after the children of Israel had been delivered through the Red Sea. You would think that they would be still living on a spiritual high at this point in time. They had been at Mount Sinai for 11 months. That period of time, Moses had gone up and down the mountain, received the law, had received the construction plans for the tabernacle, had received instruction for the uh, priesthood. And after all that, as they were breaking camp, preparing to move on up to Kadesh Barnea and have, be at the gates of the promised land, the Jews were complaining once again. This time they were complaining about having the same old manna. They weren't thankful that they were being fed every day. They were complaining about how good life was back in Egypt as slaves. Isn't that amazing how selective our memory is? When we think of the past, all we can think of is the good old days. We don't remember the crappy part of those good old days. They were remembering how great the food was and how, man, the food just wasn't very good right now. God sure isn't providing well for them. Verse 10 says that Moses heard the people weep. Imagine walking through their tents as they were bedded down for the night, the crying and the whining and the feeling sorry for themselves everywhere he looked. And Moses said unto the Lord, Why have you done this to me? Why haven't I found favor in thy sight? Why have you put all these people on my back? Have I conceived these people? Are they my children? Am I supposed to carry them around and nurse them? Is it my responsibility to feed them every time they whine and say, give me my bottle? Verse 14, he says, I can't stand it anymore. 
I'm not able to bear this alone. It is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, then kill me. I'm tired. I can't take another step. I give up. Does that surprise you that the same man that stood toe-to-toe with Pharaoh held a staff out in part of the Red Seas and walked through the Red Sea that went up Mount Sinai, and as the Scripture says, the only one that ever came face-to-face with Almighty God, yet here he was ready to chunk it all. He was discouraged and depressed. Elijah, after what he thought was a phenomenal victory, the day when he was up on Mount Carmel, and Mount Carmel is just over on the western part of the city of, 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 of Israel, I'm sorry, of the, of the nation of Israel, and looks out to the uh, east over the Jezreel Valley. It's like a big stage where hundreds of thousands of people literally could be out in the Jezreel Valley and witness what was taking place up on top of Mount Carmel. Well, there was Elijah when he challenged the prophets of the grove and the prophets of Baal. And he was proven to be the one true prophet of God in the northern kingdom. He thought they were about to have a great revival. He was terribly excited that the, that the northern ten tribes are going to repent and return to Yahweh. But 24 hours later, found out that Jezebel had put out a bounty on his head and wanted him dead and swore that he was going to be dead before the end of the day. All of a sudden, this great bold prophet got discouraged. This man that called down fire from heaven got discouraged and went on the run. And he said, I can't take it anymore, Lord. Just take me home. I don't want to live any longer. And he continued to complain. Once he got to Mount Sinai, he had a face-to-face with God. And he complained. This is called, actually, psychologically, the Elijah Syndrome. Pastors, particularly guys like Dan and myself, have to be careful of things like this. Because you feel like you're carrying so much of a burden, you want to see an awakening, you want to see change so much, and then if you fail, you feel like it's your fault. That's what Elijah felt like. Felt like I failed. I've been very jealous for the Lord, that Jehovah Sabbath, the, Je- the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, they've thrown down thy altars and slain thy prophets of the sword, and now I'm all that's left. I'm the only one that's still standing for you, Lord. And they're going to take my life away. I quit. I give up. Jonah, the only successful prophet in Scripture. The only guy where the city actually listened to the message and repented. And he's the only prophet that didn't want them to listen to the message and repent. (laughs) He didn't like the Assyrians. That's why he fled the first time. He wanted them all to die. He said, God, you're going, to de- you're going to kill the Assyrians? Good. Rain down fire on them. So, no, Jonah, I want you to go pray. No, no, Lord, you're not, you're not, I'm not falling for that one. I know you. You're likely to just forgive them, and I don't want that to happen. So after he had gone and preached, he got, went up on the, the mount to overlook the city of Nineveh, and he grew faint and was depressed and wanted to die. God said, Jonah, why are you angry over the gourd? that lived and died within 24 hours. I do well to be angry even in And he said, I do well to be angry even in this. Jonah was even defending his position. Jonah was depressed. He was angry. 
But what do you notice? All three of these men, great heroes of the faith, that all were so discouraged and so depressed that they literally wanted to die. I did one funeral this last year for suicide. Suicide is when you lose hope, when you give up, when the only option appears to you to be just to end it all. Understand that these great men of God, some of the greatest heroes of the faith, some of the strongest prophets in all Scripture, actually were at that point themselves. Simon Peter was so discouraged after denying the Lord three times, even after seeing the resurrected and glorified Christ, he was so ashamed of himself that he wanted to abandon the ministry and go back into the fishing business. Guess what? We experience bad times, do we not? We experience adversity. Jeremiah was at this point. Jeremiah was at least 10 years into his 40-year mission. Different theologians debate over whether this was at the tail end, just concurrent with the destruction of Jerusalem, or whether this was earlier uh, prior to the reign of Jehoiachin. Either way, Jeremiah was somewhere 15 years to 40 years into his ministry, and he was depressed. He said, Woe is me, my mother. Mom, why did you give birth to me when all I am is a source of contention and strife to all men on all the earth? He goes on and uses an illustration of those that you might take issue with. For example, in finance, if you are a lender and somebody refuses to pay their bill, you might want to sue that individual for not paying their debt. If you're a borrower and you are unable to pay your bill, you may take issue with your creditor just as you know, those did with Ebenezer Scrooge and the fact that he wanted to collect on his debts. Jeremiah is saying, I've never lent anybody money. I don't owe anybody money. Yet everybody hates me. You know, we talked about this during our Christmas program. Salvation is free. Aren't you glad? Actually, it did. it's not free. It came with a great cost. But, but Jesus paid it for us. But it's offered to us freely. But serving the Lord usually comes at a great cost. I mentioned Christmas a moment ago, and because I, I reference this every year, consider what Mary was willing to subject herself to. She had such an honorable reputation that God selected her to bear His Son. So obviously, this is a woman with stellar credentials. Her hometown of Nazareth only had two or 300 people. No doubt they all attended the same synagogue. They all knew full well who Mary was, and they all considered her to have a great reputation and thought the world of her. Joseph, so much so that he wanted to take her as his wife. And the angel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to bear a child. She said, I, I can't, I'm a virgin. She said, nevertheless, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and overshadow you. You are going to bear the Son of God. Now, she could have said, no, too much of a price to pay. My reputation's on the line. Nobody's going to believe this story. Who in the world's going to believe that I'm still a virgin, yet I'm pregnant? 
Nevertheless, her said, okay, Lord, whatever your will is for me, consider me a bondservant to do whatever you call me to do. Well, Jeremiah is also doing exactly what God called him to do. He was right in the middle of God's will in every way, and everyone hated him. He was alone, and he was miserable. And this was his cry. So I wish I'd never been born. How is it that everyone hates me? How is it? I'm, I'm just out here trying to save our country from destruction. I'm, I'm trying to save my countrymen from an eternity in hell. I want them to return to Yahweh. Yet everyone hates me. The kings hate me. The priests hate me. The prophets hate me. The people hate me. The Lord said, To Jeremiah, verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Truly I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. Folks, this is a difficult passage to translate. And there is some question as to what is exactly being said. But I like to read it and reread it and follow the line of thought. And I come to a conclusion with many other Bible students that this is referencing that God would, in fact, protect Jeremiah and give him a full length of life. Now, the question is, who is the enemy that's being referred to in verse 11? If the enemy is consistent with some of the previous verses, you might think it was some of his own countrymen, the Judaizers, the Judahites. However, when you tie this into the verses that follow, it seems that it's talking about Babylon, which, again, I think makes more sense. Either way, in fact, when we come to chapter 40, you'll find that once it's too late, the kings of Israel will actually come to Jeremiah and say, okay, you were right, now what do we do? Only at that point, it's too late. I can't tell you how many times I saw through the years with my dad as a pastor. Of course, dad never pastored church more than about 75 people. Generally, somewhere between 40 and 75. Everybody loved dad. Everybody got saved under dad's preaching. Then they all went away to some other church that was more comfortable. And then when their child was on drugs or their marriage was a wreck, guess what? They'd come running back to dad as if dad could fix it then all of a sudden at the last minute. Well, that did, in fact, happen. They did come back to Jeremiah and say, Okay, Jeremiah, you were right. What do we do now? But it was too late. This seems to be more consistent with the fact that the Babylonians did, in fact, treat Jeremiah well. In fact, word had gotten to their military leadership that this was a true prophet of the God of Israel. Of course, there were times where Jeremiah had traveled back and forth from the area of Babylon, whether he went all the way to the city or not, not sure. But we know that some of his letters had gotten all the way back to Daniel and all the way back to Ezekiel, and they studied his writing. So his reputation was broad. And when the city actually fell, he was treated well. He was entreated well in the time that the city was suffering great affliction coming under the control of the Babylonians. 
God continuing his course of conversation, speaking to those that cursed Jeremiah. Now, we'll see that Jeremiah was not just mocked and reviled, but Jeremiah would actually be jailed and even tortured when we get into next week's lesson and those shortly thereafter. Those that had mistreated and mocked and persecuted Jeremiah would, in fact, get what they deserve. The Scripture says here, shall iron, uh, shall steel break uh, the northern iron and the steel, thy substance and thy treasures, Israel, Judah, I will give to the spoiler without price. And that because of all of thy sins. In fact, not just a part of the land, but all of your land is going to be subjugated. I will make thee to pass with thine enemies into a land which thou knowest not. You're going to be taken off into a strange land. For a fire is kindled. This is God talking. Say, I am steaming man. And my wrath is going to be poured out upon you. Now again, it seems consistent that these spoilers... This iron that was stronger than the metal that Judah could muster would in fact be the invading army of Babylon. Now Jeremiah responds, O Lord, you know, remember me, rescue me, revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long-suffering presence. Lord, I know the way you work. You are long-suffering. And is he not? God is not slack concerning his promises, and some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. But Lord, in your patience in dealing with Zedekiah and others, they're going to kill me. Remember me, Lord. Visit me in my affliction. Take revenge on my behalf. I'm being punished. Don't let your long-suffering extend my time of suffering. Would anybody offer that kind of a prayer today? Probably everybody in this room. Lord, I'm doing your will. I'm tired of this. I've suffered enough. Wait a second. I'm the one that's in your will. Why am I catching all this garbage? How about taking it out on them? Understand that patience is not justice denied but it is justice delayed. And we all are grateful to God's long-suffering. But understand that there will be a payday someday. The same Jesus that said He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life, is also the same Jesus that said there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and most of you are on it. There's a narrow road that leads to eternal life, and there be a few that find that. The same Jesus that said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is also the same Jesus that said, Hey, you all are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, uh, uh, won't you, uh, what about all the good works that I've done? And I'm going to say unto you, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire that's made for the devil and his angels. Guess what? That same Jesus that came riding over the crest of the Mount of Olives, humbly bringing salvation, surrendering himself to die on the cross almost 2,000 years ago, the next time he comes back on the Mount of Olives, it's going to be the Lord of hosts ticked off with blood-stained garments, and there will, in fact, be hell to pay at that point in time. The psalmist says this about the entirety of this insanity. 
Why do the unsaved heathen Gentiles rage? And all these people imagine vanity like evolution, like Marxism, like Islam. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, yad heh vav and against His anointed, that being the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, saying, we're going to break their bands asunder. We're going to cast away their cords from us. We're not going to be bound by what God says. If we want marriage to mean two men or six men or eleven men and a puppy, then we can redefine it however we want because we'll not have you to rule over us. What does God say about that? (laughs) He laughs at the audacity of puny little man standing down there on planet earth, puny little George Soros, puny little Barack Obama, or, or, or Nancy Pelosi, or Joe Biden, or Kamala Harris, shaking their fist at God and saying, I'll not have you to rule over me. Can you imagine God just falling out of his chair laughing as he's rolling on the floor at the, at the audacity of that statement? He shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them with his sore displeasure. And he's going to say, regardless of what you, how you vote, <laughs> I like that. Regardless of how you stole the election, uh, I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, son, and I will give thee all the Gentile nations for thine inheritance, the entirety of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, an iron scepter. Thou shalt dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. How many have ever dropped a plate or dropped a glass? Or how many of you women have ever thrown something at your husband? just to see it shatter. That's the imagery here. These kings of the earth that array themselves in defiance to destroy uh, Israel and to fight against the Most High God at Armageddon are going to be crushed, shattered like a potter's vessel. Now, it's not too late yet, verse 10 says. Be wise now, O ye kings of the earth. Receive instruction, O you that are temporarily in positions of judgment on planet earth. Serve the Lord with reverential fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss, what does that mean? A pledge of allegiance in their day. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Verse 16 Jeremiah says, Lord, thy words were found and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Jehovah Sabbath, Lord of hosts. Understand the reference here. It's consistent throughout Scripture. In Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, he was told, uh, hear what I'm telling you, Ezekiel. And this is what I want you to say to them. Don't be a rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat what I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a scroll of a book was therein. And he spread it, opened it up before me, and it was written on the inside and on the outer cover. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and judgments. 
Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and then go and speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy heart with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go and get thee into the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. Understand the idiom is absorbing, consuming God's word, and then taking God's word and speaking it to the house of Israel. The same thing is true in the book of Revelation. We see John in chapter 10, when the mighty angel stands with the foot on the seas and the foot on the ocean, holding up his claim to planet earth. And it says in verse 10 and 11, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Hey, you read the book of Revelation and boy, there's a happy ending. God is on his throne. Uh, The devil is in the uh, lake of fire. But to get from point A to point B, there is a whole lot of sourness, a whole lot of, 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 of difficult things to digest. And he said unto me, you, uh, John, must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So understand, here, John, I'm giving you my word. Take it in, digest it. And then the reason I'm giving it to you is to share with others. Speak to the people. That's what Jeremiah is referencing when you compare Scripture to Scripture. He has been given the word of God to consume it to make it a part of him, and then to share it with others. Verse 17. Lord, I I didn't sit with all the in people. I I didn't sit in the assembly of of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I've been alone. It's because of you, God. I'm all by myself. I agree with you, Lord. I hate sin. I'm filled with indignation. Lord, why do I hurt all the time? Why is my wound incurable? Why can't I be healed? (laughs) Wilt thou, Lord, be unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? Don't jump to conclusions. That word liar is not as you would immediately think that it means, but it's similar. Ladies and gentlemen, the left didn't invent the cancel culture over the last couple of years. Quite frankly, we see it here. You know, as I said a little while ago, Jesus said there's a broad road that leads to destruction. And many there be that are on that path. The wicked kings, the corrupt priests of Judah, the false prophets of Judah, and the people of Judah liked the darkness. They liked idolatry. They liked the sexual immorality. They didn't want to change. They just wanted God to bless them. And they wanted to do what they wanted to do. Does that sound familiar? And they hated Jeremiah. And here was Jeremiah, prophet of God. He saw things through righteous eyes. Truly had a heart for the Lord. He hated sin. Because Jeremiah was standing with the Lord and standing for the Lord, he was standing all by himself. He loved his country. He loved his people, but he loved God and he hated sin and he reproved it with every fiber of his person. And as a result, he was ostracized. He was all alone and he hurt all over. We're going to get into the next chapter and we're going to see that Jeremiah was even forbidden from being married. Now, remember the observation that God made about Adam. It's not good that you should be alone. I'm going to give you a helpmate. 
Jeremiah was told, no, no, no. Jeremiah says, hey, Lord, I'm all by myself. I'm alone here. God says, no, I don't even want you to be married, Jeremiah. You're going to be by yourself. Again, Jeremiah said, Lord, it doesn't make sense. I'm right in the middle of your will. I'm doing exactly what you called me to do. I didn't want this job. Why am I the one that's being punished? Why am I the one that's suffering? Why am I the one that's hated? Remember in chapter 1, Jeremiah was called. Jeremiah made excuses. He said, I'm too young. Lord, not me. Choose someone else. You remember God promised him, don't be afraid of their dirty looks. Don't be afraid of their intimidation tactics. Don't be afraid when they block you on Facebook. I will deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, and he touched my mouth, Jeremiah said. The Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set you, Jeremiah, over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Now, therefore, Jeremiah, stand up like a man. Cinch up your britches. Speak unto them all that I command thee. Don't be taken off your game. Don't be dismayed. Uh, don't be intimidated at their faces. Because if you back up, then I'll let you stand by yourself. If you keep pressing forward, then I'll go with you. For behold, I have made thee this day a well-defensed city, an iron pillar, brass walls. Again, the whole idea is impregnable. Made you impregnable against the kings of Judah, against their princes, against the priests, against the people of the land. They shall fight against thee, but don't worry, they're not going to win, because I'm with thee, saith the Lord, and I will deliver thee. Back to verse 18, where Jeremiah was saying, why do I hurt all the time? Why, why can't I feel good? Why can't I have a day that I'm not racked with anxiety? Why do I have a day that I don't break down in tears? I'm not the one that's living in disobedience. They are. Why are they seemingly happy? And I'm all by myself. I, I think that Jeremiah believed that he was a failure. I think that... that, that um, oh, good grief. Um, Elijah thought that he was a failure. I think most of these prophets considered themselves to have failed in their calling and mission. Again, what's really ironic and humorous is the only one that was successful is the one that didn't want to be successful. And he made this accusation. He said, God, did you mislead me? Can I really depend on you? is the point that he's making here, and I'll show you a picture here that gives explanation. Now understand here, ladies and gentlemen, before you go down the same trail and think that you can be Jeremiah, Jeremiah was given a lot of slack. Jeremiah had God's heart, and quite frankly, God is more, it's more important that we always be reverential and respectful, but don't think you're going to pull the wool over God's eyes. I mean, if you're upset, tell him. Pour out your heart to the Lord. He's not going to fall for empty platitudes. Jeremiah genuinely loved the Lord. He, he was obedient to God's call. He was genuinely hurting. He was genuinely pouring out his heart. He was passionate. Jews are passionate. The thing I like about Jews are like Baptists. They love to eat all the time in fellowship. 
But as you saw in Ecclesiastes, they at a wedding will dance and sing and dance in circles and hold hands and celebrate. And at a funeral, they'll dress in black and cry and mourn like nobody's business. He was genuinely hurting. He was genuinely pouring out his heart. His hurt stemmed from believing that God had in fact forsaken him. And he said, God, have you misled me? That term that says, are you unto me as a liar, as waters that fail? This is a view from the top of Mount Carmel looking down towards the east over the Jezreel Valley. You... Incorrectly, this is called the Valley of Armageddon. There is no Valley of Armageddon. There is the city of Megiddo, the ancient city of Megiddo, called uh, 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 Tel Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. And then there is the Jezreel Valley. There's not really a Valley of Armageddon. However, it is this valley that is frequently referred to as Armageddon. As I said a while ago, imagine being up on top there as Elijah, and you could have hundreds of thousands of, of Jews watching what was taking place on top of the mountain. And that's exactly what happens. But you'll notice when, when Elijah had his challenge to the prophets of Baal and Grove, see that right there. That actually is a what the Jews call a wadi. What it is, it's, it's a dry creek bed. It looks just like any other creek except it's not spring-fed. The only time it has water in it is when it rains or when it snows in the mountain and the snow melts. Then there are months out of the year where these wadis will actually have water, but then the majority of the year it is a deceptive brook. It has the appearance of being able to provide relief if you're at a distance and you see, oh, it looks like there's a stream up ahead. Boy, I'm dying of thirst. I can't wait to get there. Then once you get there, there's actually no relief provided. That is the point that Jeremiah was making. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, you know what? Oh, boy, we're right now. We have, we have spent all this time laying the foundation for what I'm going to cover, but it's going to probably take me a while to cover it. Next week's always good, or possibly, possibly even Sunday morning. I might, I'm preaching this Sunday, I believe I am. If, uh, I may address this in greater detail with uh, the larger congregation. Uh, on Sunday morning. In fact, I think I'll do that because we've got another announcement. We need to pray and we need to be out on time. Uh, Folks, what we're going to find out here, is it proper to pour out your heart to God? Yes. It's also proper to recognize when you are in fact wrong and repent of it. God gives us a lot of slack. You know, you've had kids You've had bad kids, you've had good kids. If your good kids have earned, earned a lot of credit, you may look the other way when you catch a glimpse of them doing something they shouldn't do. Just, uh, I, I'll, I'll pretend I didn't see that. Uh, whereas the kids that you need to sit on top of a little bit more tightly, you might not get as much slack. Jeremiah had an awful lot of slack, and it was genuine. He wasn't just spewing to, to spew. I mean, he was alone. He was by himself. He was heartbroken. And he was pouring out his heart to God saying, wait a second, Lord, I didn't want this job. And this is certainly not what I signed up for. And if I remember right, it's not what you promised me. Well, actually, it was. Uh, Only Jeremiah failed to have John Lash examine the details of the contract before he agreed to it. 
and see what all the, uh, what all the uh, ramifications actually were. So I tell you what, we will stop right there, uh, and we'll pick up either next Wednesday or next Sunday morning. Uh, I'm not sure yet. This really, this really ties into a, a, a good, now I'm thinking about it, this will tie into a great message that the, the larger congregation needs to hear on Sunday morning.